David is going to read the Bible to us today. I'm going to bring the microphone over to David to do that. Jesus talks with a Samaritan woman. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to come, keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, 
I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Well, thanks for reading, David, and good morning again, everyone. As I said before, my name is Carl. I'm the pastor here. Now, haven't we had a terrific morning so far? It's been really great, uh, particularly to have Georgia doing a kids' talk with us. They say, like father, like son, or like father, like daughter. I think doing a kids' talk, it must be kind of genetic, right? Because she was brilliant, fantastic. Thank you, Georgia, for helping out in that way. We're working our way through the first four chapters of John's Gospel at the moment. Uh, Next week, Jeff will be with us and we'll be looking at the topic of election. And as we get ready to look at John's Gospel, how about I pray for us? Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for John's Gospel, which helps us to see who your son Jesus is. And we ask that as we read its words this morning, that you would help us to believe. Amen. Well, if 2020 has been nothing else, it's been a strange year, hasn't it? I wonder in this strange year if there's anything particularly that you've learnt. For me, I reckon this year I've learnt about cleanliness and cleaning more than I ever have before. Let me give you an example. I used to clean my office desk, well, maybe about once a year. We've been upstairs for a couple of years. I think I've done it at least once before COVID came along. To do that, I would walk down into the BCSA kitchen. I'd hunt around in the cupboard under the sink. Right at the very back, I'd find a bottle of spray, Pink Panther, take it up and wipe the desk down. And when I wiped it down, one wipe, and then you look at the cloth and it would be black. Grot and grime and dust and who knows what would be on that cloth. And today, at the moment, I'm trying to wipe my office desk down once a day or once every couple of days and I wipe it and now it's just like clean. There's nothing like you're wiping up. As I think back to 2019, I kind of shudder to think about all the grot and grime that we just lived with on a daily basis. Or another example, a couple of weeks ago, I went over to say hello to my neighbour and as I approached her, she stuck out her hand and before I could say we don't do that anymore, she was shaking my hand like it was back in 2019. What do you do when that happens? Well, I went home after the conversation, went into the bathroom at the front of the house and started scrubbing my hands with soap. I felt terrible because I like my neighbour and she seems like a nice person and yet I felt like I was trying to wash her off. But that's what we're supposed to do, isn't it? I wonder if you've had a similar experience or maybe for you it's been going to get that COVID test where they put that cotton wool bud in and they try and scrape it feels a little bit of the bottom of your brain off when they're doing it. I think the worst bit of the COVID test, though, is not the actual test, but it's going home and being isolated, locking yourself in your room or your house so as you won't defile anyone else. And because of COVID and because of these feelings about cleanliness and defiling other people and those sorts of things, I reckon this year we're able to understand the story of John chapter 4 in a way like we probably weren't able to before. In this chapter, Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman. 
And with the background of COVID and cleanliness, I think we're able to understand the emotions that are on view here. Because you could read this passage today as just like a a normal encounter, a run-of-the-mill encounter, two people having a chat at the water cooler. What could be more normal than that? But for the original readers, back in the time of Jesus, I think this is a culturally remarkable moment that we see on view here. For a Jewish reader, this encounter, I think, just drips with uncleanliness, with germs all over it. All sorts of the social taboos are being broken in this story. The Samaritan woman in the story, she knows that. She senses the awkwardness of the situation. She knows that in Jewish eyes, she's defiled. That's why it says in verse 9 that Jews and Samaritans don't associate. But here's the thing. And these are Don Carson's words. She, the woman does not know that far from being defiled by what is unclean, Jesus sanctifies what he touches. Let me say that again. She doesn't know that far from being defiled by what is unclean, Jesus sanctifies what he touches. It's a great truth about who Jesus is. He doesn't get contaminated. He's the one who makes others sparkling clean. And that's because he's the Messiah. He's the chosen one. He came, John's telling us, not just for those who looked like God's people, but he came for the whole world. I reckon that's the big idea in this passage. Now, last week in chapter 3, we saw Jesus reach out to Nicodemus. He said to Nicodemus, look at the Son of Man, lifted up on a pole. That's how you get new birth. And this week in chapter 4, he says to the Samaritan woman, I have living water to offer you that will become a spring welling up to eternal life. These two stories, Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, they sit either side of chapter 3 verses 16 to 21. In those verses, which we, we haven't read as a church, but I'd love you to read this afternoon, we see God's love for the world in the giving of his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Today I want to look at two questions with you and then give you two bits of encouragement. Firstly, first question, what is the Samaritan problem? Who are the Samaritans? Secondly, what is living water? So two questions and then two bits of encouragement. I want you to see firstly that Jesus knows us inside out. And secondly, I want you to see that the Samaritans, they believed. That's why John's writing that we might believe. And the Samaritans, they believe. So let's start by taking a quick look at the Samaritans. At the start of chapter 4, Jesus is down in Judea. He'd previously been in Jerusalem, clearing out the temple courts. And at the start of chapter 4, Jesus gets wind of a disturbance, perhaps not wanting to interfere with the ministry of John the Baptist, Jesus decides to leave Judea and head towards Galilee. Now, if you're anything like me, you won't know your Palestinian geography really well. So, Cam, if you can pop it up on the screen, you'll see what's going on here. Jesus is down in Jericho and he decides to head to Galilee. And to get there, he can go two ways. He can cross over the Jordan and head up the right-hand side or he can go straight through the guts through Samaria. 
Now today, if you were a Jew and you were driving through that region, it's the kind of place where you'd wind up your car windows as you drive through. But Jesus isn't driving, he's walking and he's on foot. And he comes to the town of Sychar, which is near the plot of ground where Jacob's well is. This is Samaritan country, Samaria. Who are they? Well, they probably have shared ancestors with the Jews, but they married into others, other cultures, other peoples. They held to some Jewish beliefs, but not all of them. They believed in one God and in Moses and in the Jewish law. They had the first five books of the Jewish Bible, but they had some differences. They saw Mount Gerizim as the place to worship God rather than down in Jerusalem. They believed, though, that one day there would be someone like Moses who would return. They called that person the Taheb, or the Restorer, or the Returning One. There was animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews. The New Bible Dictionary lists a couple of events. At one stage, some Samaritans came and scattered some bones in the Jewish temple. You can imagine that was not well received. And there are a few skirmishes between them as well. You might know the parable of the Good Samaritan. In that parable, we have a priest, Jewish priest, and a Levite who passed by an injured man, and lo and behold, it's the Samaritan who stopped. There's a contrast between these two people. And in John chapter 4, I think what we're supposed to see is the uncleanliness of the Samaritans. Have a look with me at verse 9. You'll see a bracketed bit of text there. In my Bible, it's translated somewhere, somewhere along these lines. It says, for the Jews do not associate with the Samaritans. Perfectly legitimate way of translating that verse. But it could also be translated as, the Jews don't share utensils with the Samaritans. Don't share utensils. If you have a look at our COVID safe plan out there, you'll find on there that today we are not to share utensils as a church. See, I think today we understand what's going on in this passage. So with that background then about who the Samaritans are, can you see the contrast that John is setting up between Nicodemus in chapter 3 and the Samaritan woman here in chapter 4? Nicodemus was the teacher of Israel. He was part of the ruling council. He was a Pharisee. He was a bigwig and he was thoroughly Jewish. In terms of ceremonial cleanliness, Nicodemus in one sense is squeaky clean. And yet Jesus says emphatically to Nicodemus, you must be born again if you're going to enter into the kingdom of God. You must look to Jesus lifted up on the pole. Now compare that with chapter 4, with the Samaritan woman. Not only is she a Samaritan, but she's also a Samaritan with a bit of a past. She's had five husbands. And I think there's some ambiguity in the text as to why she's had five husbands. Did they die? Has she been divorced five times? It doesn't tell us. But the squeaky cleanliness of Nicodemus, I think, stands in contrast. And I don't think this is an accident. John's a careful writer. And between these two stories, we read that famous verse that many of you will know, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world, not just Nicodemus, not just the Jews, not just the squeaky clean, not just those who look the part. Whoever believes might have eternal life. 
And I think the story of Nicodemus and the story of the Samaritan woman, it's, it's like a case study. It's expanding the world and whoever. And I hope that's a great encouragement for you this morning because I imagine that few of us see ourselves as a Nicodemus in the story. After all, he was Israel's reverend doctor teacher. But the Samaritan woman, on the other hand, well, I feel like she's closer to who I am anyway. Maybe you feel that way as well. Because she's an ordinary, warts and all kind of person, and, and she has a past. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think all of us would say we too have a past. They're all things that we wish we hadn't done, or seen, or said, or thought. And what I find so encouraging about this story is that it shows us that, that no one is beyond the saving grace of God. You don't need to look like you fit in at church. You don't need to have it all together. You don't need to have the squeaky clean past. John tells us Jesus came for Nicodemus and he came for the Samaritan woman. He came for you and he came for me. Well, let's move on to have a look at this idea of living water. What is this all about? If you've got your Bibles open, have a look at verse 7 of John chapter 4. There, Jesus asked the woman for a drink. He's hot and he's thirsty. He's been walking, remember? His disciples have left him and he's got no way of getting water out of the well. We've already sort of realized this is a strange thing for him to be doing, to be talking to a Samaritan woman and to be asking her for a drink. When the woman questions him, Jesus says something even stranger in verse 10. Let me read to you. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, that, that water and life are connected is you know, not a, a strange thing to get our heads around, is it? We live in the driest state in Australia, and so we know all too well that water and life are connected. When it rains, the grass grows. And yet Jesus doesn't seem to be talking about physical water, about wet water here. And the Samaritan woman doesn't get it. She challenges Jesus. You've got nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and livestock? Don Carson in his commentary points out the irony of this because the water that Jesus offers doesn't come from the well and he is in fact far greater than Jacob. But of course what's going on here is that Jesus is not talking about wet water. He's not talking about rain that gives life to the grass. He's speaking about water that produces eternal life, a spiritual water that once given wells up from inside. This is the sort of refreshment and nourishment that only God can give. It's God who gives living water and it satisfies deeply. I wonder what you're seeking today. You might be yearning for a time when we can travel freely again. You might be looking for happiness or satisfaction or fulfillment in life. Jesus says to this woman, whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, it will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. If you've been with us for a few weeks, 
you will have seen some of the other allusions back to the Old Testament. And you'll be not surprised then to know that there is an allusion here back to the Old Testament as well. In Jeremiah chapter 2, we read this. This is God speaking through Jeremiah. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Here in Jeremiah, God himself is the spring of living water. And I take it this is in the person of the Spirit. And yet, rather than being filled with God, the Israelites back in Jeremiah's time have substituted God for other things. Instead of tapping into the spring of living water, they they instead dig for themselves cisterns to hold stale water. And eventually those cisterns crack and the water runs out. This is an image here of idolatry. Instead of turning to God, they, they build for themselves other ways of replacing God, digging cisterns that will hold water. But in turn, those idols are shown to be useless and fail. We're probably not so different today, are we? We've done, I think, as a society, a marvellous job of working out how we can build cisterns to hold water. Some of them look pretty good. Things like insurance and bank balances and education and employment agencies and hospitals. There's whole lots of things that prop us up. And of course they're not bad things, but neither are they living water. A healthy bank balance, for example, is a great luxury and a good thing to have. And yet in an economic crisis, bank balances might just fall over. They might crack like a broken system. Jesus is offering here a gift in John chapter 4, living water, a spring of living water. He's offering eternal life. And I think John's asking us as readers, will you reach out and take that gift? It's a great gift. It's the very best of gifts. It's there for Nicodemus. It's there for the Samaritan woman. It's there for you and I. Your past doesn't disqualify you. So I've talked a little bit about the Samaritans, a little bit about living water. Next, I want you to be encouraged by seeing that Jesus knows the Samaritan woman and by implication, I think he knows you and I. The woman asks Jesus for water and he responds by asking her to go and get her husband. I have no husband, she replies. And then Jesus says something which I think is both scary and really encouraging at the same time. He shows the woman that he knows her, that he knows what's going in her mind and he knows what's happened in her past. You've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. So Jesus has gone straight to the the nub of concern for this woman. He's hit the sensitive spot, so to speak. And can you see, here is more evidence that John is giving us for who Jesus is. Who can do that? Who knows the inner workings of another person's mind? Who knows their past in detail? The woman thinks Jesus must be a prophet. Who else could do this other than God speaking? Who else knows what's going on in our hearts and in our minds? I want you to pause here and just see the significance of what John is doing for us. He's showing us who Jesus is. So Jesus has never met this woman before. It's not like she's a friend of a friend and she'd been posting stuff on Facebook about all her past husbands and that Jesus happened to have been trolling her just before he arrives at the well. 
No, he's never met her before, but he knows her. And that's because he's not an ordinary man. He's God in flesh. God knows us. You might think this year, of all years, that God has forgotten us. That he's maybe off focusing on another planet somewhere else. Not worried about this planet. But I encourage you, God knows us. He knows what's going on. There's a reminder of that in Isaiah chapter 49. We looked at this passage a year or so ago when we, when we took the topic of identity. In Isaiah 49, the people are questioning God and asking then if he's forgotten them. They're in exile. And this is God's response. He says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. God's love for his people is is greater than the love a mother has for the baby at her breast. Our names are engraved on the palms of God's hands. That's the love that God has for us. And at the same time, he loves us even though he knows us. So he knows what's in our minds. He knows what's in our hearts. He knows our past. And yet, our names are engraved on the palms of his hands. I think John is showing us here the scope of Jesus' love and compassion. It's not just for people like Nicodemus. It's also for the woman at the well. He knows her and yet he's offering her living water. And the implication for us today, it must be this, doesn't it? It doesn't matter who you are, whether you're Nicodemus, the woman at the well, or anyone in between. Jesus has for us living water. How do we drink that water? Well, again, we look to the cross, to the work of Jesus there. We're to be born again. We're to repent and we're to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus and sit under his rule and his authority. This holds true for the best of us and for the worst of us. We all need Jesus. In Mark's gospel, Jesus tells us that it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And he goes on to say, I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners. After all, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is life-changing, life-giving, an offer Jesus has for us. This afternoon at AGM, I want to encourage us as a church to keep on growing, to be reaching new people, not because I want to build an empire of our church, no, but because the message of the gospel is such great news. I hope you can see that in John chapter 4. Jesus has an offer of living water, of life, of purpose and fulfillment. A spring that wells to eternal life. And I hope as a church we're able to spread that message far and wide. Because it's a great news story. Before we move on, a quick word of warning as well. I want you to see that this is not a take it or leave it sort of offer. A few years back when we could still travel, Meredith and I um, went out for a meal in Melbourne and we stumbled across a really great restaurant and they had a kind of feed me offer. You know one of those meals where you say to the chef, bring me what you want, to, want us to taste? And so dish after dish just came to our table. We had no idea of what was coming next, but dish after dish came. 
wasn't long before we were pretty full and still more food was coming out. And then a waiter came past and she said, would you like the dessert? It's included, but you don't have to have it. You might already be full. You might not want it. It's included. You've already paid for it, but would you like it? It's a good thing, but it's a take it or leave it kind of offer. I think the offer that Jesus is making for us here in John chapter 4 is, is not like dessert in a restaurant. So you could be sitting here saying, oh, this all makes sense. I can see that Jesus is offering living water. But I'm quite satisfied. I'm quite full already. I've got plenty. I've got a great life. I've got healthy kids. I've got a perfect family. I've got a happy job. All those sorts of things. John says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. At the end of John chapter 3, he also says this, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Jesus offers the Samaritan woman living water. It's a great offer. But I want you to see it's not a take it or leave it kind of thing. Eternal life is at stake. Well, last thing I want to do with you this morning is help you as we leave, leaving with some encouragement about the importance of sharing your testimony with others about how God's been at work in your life. And I'll do that by having you drop down to verse 39. David didn't read this to us before, uh, but if you've got your Bibles open there, come with me down to verse 39 of chapter 4. And I'm going to read it to you. This is what it says. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him, that's Jesus, because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves and we know this man really is the saviour of the world. Many of the Samaritans, do you see in the passage here, believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. My prayer this week and in weeks to come will be that we would have opportunity as a church, as individuals, to share our testimony with others of who Jesus is and what he's done in our life. Perhaps you'll be able to share that testimony with your children or with work colleagues or with friends from school or with people you go shopping with. See, we too, I think, can testify that we are known by God and loved by God and saved by God despite who we are. That we're loved and known despite our sinfulnesses and our shortcomings and our ignorances. We know that because John tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Let me finish by praying for us. Father, we thank you for John's gospel. For the last four weeks, we've been able to look at, look at the words that John wrote and see clearly that Jesus is the chosen one, the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Father, we pray that you would help us to believe. We also pray that you would give us opportunity to help others see the truth of your word. And that they too would believe. Amen.